Good morning. Am I the only one that has been just scattered this whole morning? All right. Let's try and reset here. Tried to reset during the worship and the music time, but uh, still kept getting scattered. So before I read our passage for today from the gospel of Mark, let me just go ahead and pray to try and reset everything. Oh, Lord, you know, the, the anxieties and the angst in our hearts this morning. You know, those of us who are just scattered and distracted and even, maybe even confused. You know, those of us who are just totally focused in and locked in on you. And we pray, Lord, that this morning that your spirit would would minister to each of us in the way that we need it. To the anxious heart that you would bring calm. To the focused you would bring wisdom. To the hurting heart you would bring healing. To the hopeless you would bring hope. But above all, Father, we pray that you would glorify your name during this hour and during this time of looking into your word because healing, hope, focus, glory all comes from glorifying you and seeing you as you really are. That whatever we think you are coming in here this morning, that we would retain those things which are actually true about you discard those things that are false about you, those beliefs about you that are false and embrace the truth of who you really are. Believing that you are our savior, our deliverer, our hope and our resurrection in Jesus name. Amen. All right, let's take a look at the gospel of Mark chapter two verses one through 12. We're continuing, uh, for the next couple of weeks, our series on, but God, and here we're looking at the issue and the fact that, but God only can forgive sins. Nobody else can forgive sins, but God, which creates this difficult moment in the life of Jesus and this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. So let's look at Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And as he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not hear him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. 
but that you may know that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Okay. There's just a whole lot here. I mean, you got this whole craziness about there's this big crowd and the people carrying this paralytic guy on his bed can't get to him. And so then they go up on the roof. I mean, I've, I've been in this situation of preaching and teaching in churches for a long time, and I've never had the room so full that somebody had to like dig a hole through the roof to try and hear my preaching. That was supposed to be funny. You guys were supposed to laugh. And, I mean, everybody's here to hear Jesus, not watch you put your friend through a hole in the roof. What are you doing? I mean, I know you care about your friend. You want to... But you're disrupting Jesus. And we came to hear Jesus. Right? And therein lies one of the things we have to come to terms with. Often God will interrupt our plans and our schedules for his purposes. I don't like it. I would much rather prefer that we kept my schedule and my plan. I notice I use the we because I'm assuming God's listening to me when I say I don't want to have my schedule interrupted. But he ignores me anyway and interrupts it. So how are you doing on that subject? How are you at letting God interrupt your schedule and your plans? Hmm. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm getting better, getting better. But we still got a ways to go. When we look at this passage, and I'm trying to stay focused on the subject that only God can forgive sins. And we see that Jesus lets this guy down through the roof. And it's obvious to everybody what they want. Right? They want Jesus to miraculously heal this guy so that he is no longer a paralytic, no longer paralyzed, no longer lying on his back all the time, but is now able to get up and walk. And live a normal life. Right? Nobody asked Jesus to forgive this guy of his sins. All they wanted was for Jesus to heal his body. But when they lower him through the roof, make sure I get this straight. They open up the roof, they lower him through the roof, they want Jesus to heal his body, and 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 Jesus looks at this guy. And I'm assuming he looks up at the four friends and looks back at the guy. Your sins are forgiven. What the heck? What are you doing, Jesus? I mean, that's nice. I really appreciate you forgiving me of my sins. But what we wanted was for you to heal the body. What is this? What is this thing you're doing? Talking about forgiving him of his sins. That's not what we asked you to do. Which comes to our second thing. Jesus doesn't do always what we ask, but what we need. How are you doing on that subject of receiving what you need, not what you asked for? Yeah, me too. But I'm getting better, getting better. Still got a ways to go. And so Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. 
And lo and behold, can you believe it? Jesus says something really significant. And there's a bunch of Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and people of the Jewish law standing there. Uh, Who would have thunk that would happen? And then, right? I mean, when we read the gospels, Jesus is all over these guys because they get it wrong so often. But this time they actually get it right. I mean, they actually got it right. What What is he saying? God is the only one that can forgive sins. Not some carpenter from Nazareth. What is he doing? And they got it right because that is exactly what God has said before Jesus comes along. That only he can forgive sins. Let's look, just just hang your place. Don't bother going there because I'm just going to read it to you. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Now, by the way, here's some bonus material this morning. Not even really part of the sermon. You see that phrase that starts out verse 25? I, I am he, right? There's a few places in the Old Testament where God starts talking and he says, I, even I, or in this case, I, I am he. Whenever he repeats his introduction, I, even I, He really means business. I mean, this is one of those, you know how when you're really in trouble, how do you know that you're really, really in trouble with your mom? When she uses your full name, right? This is God using your full name. I, even I, I, I am he. You better, this is, oh, I better pay attention now. Yes, that's right. You better pay attention now. When you see that in your Bible, you better pay attention because he means business now. Before it was fun and patience and kindness and gentleness and mercy. But I, even I, oh, we're going to, we're not playing games no more, brothers and sisters. So I, I am he, he really means business now. And the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Only God can forgive sins, right? And here's the other problem with Jesus saying this, right? No other prophet forgave sins when they healed somebody miraculously. Elisha had multiple healings, but he never connected forgiveness of sins. Elijah had a couple of miraculous healings and never connected it to forgiving of sins. Isaiah had a miraculous healing, but didn't connect it to forgiving sins. He did connect it to, you know, turn away and repent, but he didn't connect it to forgiving your sins. Even when they raised someone from the dead, like Elisha and Elijah did, it wasn't connected to being forgiven of your sins. Nobody's done this before. And here's Jesus saying, I'm going to forgive your sins and I'm going to miraculously heal you. What? What the heck is Jesus doing? Did he have to say, your sins are forgiven? Did he have to say that? No. I mean, you can imagine some of the disciples, probably Peter, standing there on the side, knowing the scribes and the Pharisees and Sadducees and all those guys were there. Like, oh, you see him doing the face plant. Oh, did he have to? Why did he say that? 
Do you have to say that? No, he could have just simply said, rise and walk. That's all he had to say. He didn't have to say your sins are forgiven. Yes, he could have just said those words, which immediately raises the question, well, why didn't he? Why did he go to all this consternation, creating troublemaking to use the phrase, your sins are forgiven? Why didn't he just say rise and walk? Because he wanted to tell the crowd he was not just a prophet or a teacher. What had everybody been saying ever since he showed up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River? Oh, this is a great prophet. He's a great teacher. He's a great prophet. He's a great teacher. He can do miraculous healings. He wanted this crowd to understand that he is not just a prophet or a teacher. He wanted to show them. He wanted to show them he is equal to God. Ooh, that's a pretty bold claim. I mean, it doesn't, Mark didn't say that's what Jesus is doing. So how did you get there, Brian? I'm so glad you're thinking that question. Let's start with Daniel chapter seven. This time go backwards in your Bible to Daniel chapter seven. Daniel is past Psalms and Proverbs and past Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's page 831 in my Bible. Some of you got that joke. It's not like the hymnal where it's everybody's page is the same number. So when Jesus, one of the most common terms or titles that Jesus gives himself, the way he keeps referring to himself over and over and over and over in the gospels is the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. He repeats it over and over and over. And it's important to understand where this term comes from. It's in Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, this is Daniel speaking. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, the ancient of days in this vision that Daniel has referring to God, God of heaven and earth in his throne room, sitting on his heavenly throne. And then this one who is a son of man comes. What is this son of man thing? Daniel sees in his vision. Okay. In the Old Testament, even in Daniel's day, they had understanding of a promised Messiah, the promised deliverer who would come and redeem the people. But they didn't have it the same way that we understand it today. And so when Daniel sees one like a son of man, he's he's seeing someone who has all the divine qualities of God, but they have the human image of being a human being. He sees what we now understand as the incarnated Christ. He sees what we know as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, coming to earth, taking on the form of human flesh. 
And that's pretty amazing. But then God gives him dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And all peoples and all nations and all languages are supposed to serve him. Okay, there's nobody left to not serve him after all nations, all peoples, and all languages, right? And, then, and that all goes with each individual descriptor. All peoples, all languages, all nations. Oh, by the way, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. What? That never happens. I mean, look, Daniel has lived through the Jewish kingdom coming to an end. He's watched the Babylonian kingdom come to an end. He's watched the Mede kingdom come to an end. And he's seeing in his visions the end of the Persian kingdom and the rise of the Greek kingdom. I mean, look, kingdoms rise and fall every stinking day. And you're telling me that this son of man's kingdom is never going to end? Well, that just means the son of man is God. That's the only way this works. I mean, I'm sorry if you don't like that. I'm sorry. There's just no other way for this to work except for this son of man to be God. That's the only way you can have enough power. You can have enough strength. You can have enough of everything to have a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom that never, ever, ever passes away. And this is the title that Jesus has used for himself. This son of man from Daniel chapter seven. I mean, no wonder the Pharisees and the Sadducees were so ticked off at him all the time. He's claiming to be God. And he is this great ruler who has given authority over all peoples and all things. But there's a problem here. Have you noticed that? Have you, have you caught on to this problem yet? The Jesus we see in the Gospels doesn't exactly match this son of man. I mean, he's a carpenter. He's not born in the royal family. He's not sitting on a throne somewhere with a golden crown on his head. I mean, he's in Capernaum. I mean, he's Capernaum. Are you kidding me? You're a king and your throne room is Capernaum. And your court is made up of a bunch of fishermen. Are you kidding me? Right. And if, Capernaum, how do I say this? I'm trying to think of a place we've all been. There is no place we've all been that matches how small Capernaum is. No, Elizabeth. Elizabeth's even bigger than Capernaum. You could almost fit the entire population of Capernaum in this room. And this is the capital city of your kingdom. Are you kidding me? You look nothing like this son of man in Daniel chapter seven. Nothing. Except for that one thing about the guy that was lowered through the roof and you said your sins are forgiven and then he gets up and walks away. Well, that kind of does sound like this Daniel chapter 7, son of man. He is making the case that even though he looks like a nobody, 
He is God. Emmanuel, God among his people. Then we have, you say, okay, well, you know, interpretations are kind of that, Brian. I mean, this son of man title that Jesus uses, how do you really know that he means it that way? I mean, surely you've got something better than just sort of some vague connection to the Old Testament that somehow makes Jesus God. And I answer, yes, that's correct. It's where he actually says to everybody around him, including the Pharisees, that he is equal to God. Now go to John chapter 5. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews in Jerusalem, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in there in Jerusalem, but the sheep gate of pool in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, which has five roof colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, yes, I have no one to put me into the water when it is stirred. And when I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he got up his bed and walked. And this was the Sabbath. Okay, so I'm going to skip down to uh, verse 18. So because this was the Sabbath, the Pharisees were all over this guy. What are you doing carrying your bed on Sunday? I'm sorry, they're Saturday. What are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to do that. That's the breaking of the rules. Quit it. But the man who healed me told me to do that. The man who healed you. What are you talking about? And he tells them a story about how he got healed. And they said, who was this? The guy says, I don't know. The guy disappeared into the crowd before I could find out his name. And then he meets Jesus later and comes back and tells the Pharisees, well, I found out who it is. It's this guy named Jesus. And then this is the confrontation that Jesus has with the Jews as a result of him healing somebody on the Sabbath and telling that guy to carry his bed. And this was why the Jews, starting in verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, well, that's a little better, but you still didn't have Jesus actually saying the words, I am equal to God. You're right. So now let's go to John chapter 10. We'll start in verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Talking about those who are given to Jesus, he will, he will keep them safe. I and the Father are one. Did you have to say that, Jesus? And I'm not exaggerating, because look at the next verse. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, Make yourself God. Ooh, that's a problem. I and the Father are one. Okay, and Jesus answered him, so wait a minute, this is where you could have said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you misinterpret my words, let me walk that back. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? 
If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. If I am doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. Well, that's pretty close. I mean, he's actually said, you know, me and the father are equal. We're the same. We're, the, we're one. But it gets better. Right? I mean, you really want to tick off a bunch of Jews about making yourself God? Then all you need to do is say that you said is to say something like was said in Exodus chapter four. So turn back a couple of pages to John chapter eight. I'm going to start in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was I am. Oh, whoa, you really stepped into it with that one, Jesus. I mean, you just said you were I am. Peter just didn't do a face plant. He started thinking of an escape plan because he knew where this was going. I am. From Exodus chapter 4, the burning bush. Tell me your name, Moses asked. I am who I am. Tell my people I am has sent you. And you just said you are that I am that spoke to Moses? But there be, listen, there is absolutely no doubt left. Jesus absolutely believes he is God. He is the same as the father in heaven. He has said it over and over. I am the father of one. And now he even says, I am, I am, I am. Oh boy. You are God. Are you serious? You're really God come in human form. You really? It's really you? Yes. Wow. I can imagine the same thing, right? Nobody says a word. Crickets in the temple court. 
well, coming back to reality here for a moment. So Jesus talked the talk of being God, but did he, did he really walk the walk of being God? Right? One thing, I can stand here and say, I am God. I can stand here and say, I am a God. But how am I going to, pre- if I say I am God, I should have some divine characteristics and I should have some divine powers. Right? I mean, even in Greek mythology, if you had any elements of the God power in you, you had certain characteristics and power that would be on display through your actions in your life. So do we have anything that shows Jesus actually acting like he's God instead of just talking about being God? We do. But before we go there, I want to show you something else. This time, I really do want you to go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35. I guess I should tell you where I want you to go in the book of Isaiah, shouldn't I? Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. This is a picture of what will happen when the promised one comes. When the promised Messiah, the Redeemer comes, this is what it will look like. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees and say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on you. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's the promise of what happens when the promised one comes. God himself says these things will happen when the Messiah comes. This is what it looks like for God to walk on the earth. So come back to the initial question. Is there anything Jesus has been doing or does that indicates he is really God? Well, here in chapter two, he heals the paralytic. Wait. Isn't that in here? Yeah, verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 34. The lame shall leap with joy. Chapter 4, he calms the storm. Wait, I mean, I've been around a lot of really powerful preachers, but I've never seen one of them stop a thunderstorm. Chapter 5, he heals the Gadarene demoniac, the woman with the lifelong bleeding disorder, and raises Jairus' daughter from dead. All in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 and walks on the water. Then in chapter 7, 
He heals the deaf and the mute man. Wait, isn't that in there too? Yeah. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And the tongue of the mute, in verse 6, shall sing for joy. Chapter 8, he feeds the 4,000 and heals the blind man. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. Then in chapter 9, he heals the boy with the demonic spirit. Chapter 10, he heals blind Bartimaeus. Chapter 11, he withers the fig tree. And then in chapter 16, he raises from the dead. I think he kind of went overboard with the evidence and proof that he is really God. I mean, I really don't know what else you want. If you aren't convinced at this point, by the time you get to the end of Mark chapter 16, if you aren't convinced, I really don't know what else you want to prove that he is God. And all this is just from the gospel of Mark and part of the gospel of John. I've not even showed you anything from the gospels of Matthew and Luke or the rest of John that Jesus did or said showing that he is God. Okay, you made your point. So what? So what? It's a simple so what? Believe Jesus is God. Believe it. Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of human men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he humbled himself and was obedient, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, for the purpose, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Galatians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Were the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, believing in Jesus means he's reconciling all things to himself and that includes all things includes me and you we get reconciled to him say well you know okay but do i really need to believe that jesus is god yes you do so you look at just a few paragraphs later here in colossians chapter 2 verse 13 and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, who can forgive sins? Nobody but God. The only way Jesus can forgive us of our sins is to be God himself. The only way his sacrifice can suffice as payment for our sins is as if he is God himself. 
So yes, we do believe that Jesus is God because here's the equation. Believe Jesus is God equals forgiveness of sins. That's for all the math majors in the room, the math-oriented people. Here's the, the equation. Believe Jesus is God equals forgiveness of sins. You say, well, are you sure about that? I said, yeah, I'm very sure because of Acts chapter 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said that I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him, talking to a group of Gentiles like us. And then he gets towards the end of it here. I'll start in verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge of the living and the dead to him. All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There you have it. Believing in Jesus equals the forgiveness of sins. Now, do you believe? Do you really believe? Not like kind of, sort of, like, okay, I kind of agree. Your evidence is overwhelming. I can't argue against it. But do you believe with embracing it? Embracing it and and drinking it deep into your heart and soul. That's the kind of belief I plead with you to go for. To drink it in to your heart and soul that he is God and he forgives us of our sins. We're going to sing a song of response now. Okay. And during this time of response, believe all that it means for Jesus to be God and then worship like you believe it. Let the belief you have pour out of your heart and soul through the words you sing in worship to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you are a, Gloriously good God. Thank you, Father, that you have reconciled us to you through the cross. Thank you that we can find redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, and even restoration. That you can take all the things we've broken with our rebellion and restore them. And we praise you for that and thank you. And we worship you in all of your majesty, King Jesus. Amen.